Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Pastor J.D. and I are continuing on in our series as we're just marching our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Matter of full disclosure, I grew up in Atlanta, which makes me a Georgia Bulldogs fan. I am hurting and grieving this morning. And to add insult to injury, God has released into my life Alabama fans as a means of grace and sanctification, but all of them are just downright obnoxious like Daniel Simmons. So um, please uh, be with me. And although I hear there's a whole bunch of NC State fans who come here, so you feel my pain, right? Misery loves company. Misery loves company. First Corinthians chapter 9, pick me up in verse 19. Uh, of course, we understand this is the Apostle Paul who is writing. He says these words, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win. Now, this word win shows up in all but one of these verses. Paul is gospel competitive, more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might, here it is again, win those under the law. To those outside the law, make a note of that. He's talking about Gentiles. I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might, here it is again, win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means, I might save some. I love that. All, all, some. Which means we don't bat a thousand when it comes to sharing our faith. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That I may share with them in its blessings. I want to talk about the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. Will you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for this time of the year. I, I love Advent season. Centuries before you came, hundreds of prophecies were given about you, Jesus. Many of them centered around your coming, which is what Advent means. It's the idea of you coming to earth, taking on flesh and dwelling among us. And here's our hope. That just as you fulfilled all of those prophecies centuries in advance and you came once, it has been prophesied that you will come again. And so in the meantime, in between time, living in between the first and second advents, God, we are filled with hope. That's what this season is about. The hope of Jesus Christ, the hope of the gospel Give me great grace, great truth, great love as I unfold this beautiful passage on the centrality of the gospel and how it shapes us in engaging those around us that we might see people won by this same gospel to your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen. In July of 1981, there was... Um, there was the union, the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana. It was billed as the wedding of the century, and what a day it was. 
some 750 million people tuned in to watch the wedding. Another 600,000 people lined the streets of London just there outside of St. Paul's Cathedral just to get a, a, a glance at this couple on this historic day. What a day it was. And yet we understand what happened. A little over 10 years later, 11 to be exact, in 1992, Prince Charles and Princess Diana separated. Four years later, in 1996, they ended up getting divorced. And it was revealed that they had extramarital affairs. I guess the problem was this married couple was still acting as if they were single. See, this great wedding day had failed to change their day to day. It was a wonderful event, wonderful words spoken, a covenant entered into that did not change their day-to-day lives. My fear this morning is that this is analogous for so many people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Many of us can recount with freshness that time in which we came to the altar, we said that prayer, we made that commitment. And yet if we were to really look at our lives some years, decades even later, has the gospel really changed our day-to-day living? My fear is that for so many people, the, the gospel is a historical moment. It is a reference point in time when in reality, the, go- the gospel is not just a reference point, it is the point. It's not just a historical moment, it is the context for our lives, or as we love to say around here, the gospel is not just the diving board that we jump off of and kind of gets us started, it is the swimming pool, the very waters in which we immerse ourselves in. It's exactly what Jesus had in mind. If you've been around church for a while, you understand that when Jesus came, he came announcing this message, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, again, if you've been around church for a while, you understand and you've likely heard that word repent, meaning a a turning away from sin, not a 360, or you'd be right back to where you started from, but a 180. It is a turning your back on a former way of life, parenthetically. I don't think repenting is a one-time act. I think the, 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 the very definition of a Christian is we are constantly repenting. We are constantly walking away from. And yet, the Greek word for repent, here's what I want you to understand, it is the Greek word metanoia, which simply means a change of mind. I hear Leslie Newbegin now in his wonderful book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Uh, Leslie Newbegin says that repent, the idea of metanoia, a change of mind, isn't just about turning away from sin, though that is true. What he is saying is that metanoia, repent, is the idea that when we get saved, when the gospel invades our lives, it totally gives us a new uh, outlook, a new worldview, a new thought process on life. So that prior to the gospel, many people think that the punchline to life, what life is all about is success or money or degrees or status or zip code or even family. But now, since following Jesus, when the gospel invades our lives, the punchline doesn't become any of those things. We are navigated by the good news of the gospel. 
It's not just a diving board. It's the swimming pool. It's where we immerse ourselves. Now I know where I am. Again, I grew up in Atlanta. I grew up down south. We were just so nice. I know all about cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity pretty much says, let me sprinkle just enough Jesus to be acceptable, but not too much to be fanatical. I'll let the gospel do a little bit, but I'll keep it on a leash. We we, want to domesticate it, Jesus. We don't want a gospel that invades all of our lives. Come on, gospel, you can sit in the living room, but don't go in the bedroom. Don't go in the home office where the finances get worked out. You see, you have to understand, to Paul, he he had no category for cultural Christianity. He had no category for domestic Jesus or domestic gospel because in our text, he paints a picture of how the gospel, what Rosaria Butterfield calls the train wreck of the gospel, has totally upended his life. Prior to the gospel, we, we see Paul, he grows up this Orthodox Jew, which means he, he doesn't fraternize with Greeks or with Gentiles. He doesn't eat certain food. In fact, when we first meet Paul in the scriptures, here he is in the book of Acts, he is standing there aiding in the murder of Stephen, who was a follower of Jesus. Chapter 2 later, we see Paul on the road to Damascus on his way to kill more Christians, to persecute more Christians, and then literally the gospel in Jesus, this great hound of heaven, stops him in his tracks. And now what we see is metanoia. Paul's whole outlook on life has been dramatically transformed by the power of the gospel. So much so that we now see Paul in our text saying, listen, you're, you're talking to a guy who prior to Christ, I never would have hung out with Gentiles, but man, if, if, if I've got to do whatever it takes to reach them, that's what I, if I've got to go to First Watch and order a million-dollar bacon and eat million-dollar bacon because it'll better position me to share the gospel with, G, with Gentiles or Greeks, then that's what I'll do. I just knew someone would say amen to million-dollar bacon. I, I, I get it, I get it. Y'all aren't used to saying that, which I don't know if you're getting it. So that's going to just give you a long sermon because I don't know if you're getting it. So here's Paul. He says, if hanging out with Jews and only eating kosher food better positions me to gain an audience with them to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what I'll do. If observing their religious festivals, if that's what I'll, I need to do in order to share the good news of Christ with them, then that's what I'll do. Whatever it takes within Christocentric bounds to win people with the gospel, I am all for it. Because the gospel had radically changed his life. So we've been hanging out in the book of 1 Corinthians One of the things we understand as we've been making our way through this book is that we're dealing not with a healthy church, but with an unhealthy church. There is divisions, it seems, as if on every single front. 
Pastor J.D. has taught us that the way in which Paul deals with the divisions in the church is uh, he takes whatever problem, whatever division they have, and he, he applies only one solution to it, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul kind of looks at the gospel the same way my mother looked at cod liver oil. If you've, ever, if you've never taken cod liver oil in your life, consider yourself blessed. Whenever I had any kind of physical ailment, if I was sneezing or coughing, cod liver oil. If I was running a fever, cod liver oil. If I had a lump in my neck, cod liver oil. I'm being a bit facetious, but that was my mother's approach to life. To Paul, whatever problem we have, he takes the medicine of the gospel and he applies it to it. And it's a great strategy for how you and I should live. Now we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 make up a section. There's division here, and it's division over a non-essential item like uh, food being offered to idols. You had one group of people who were saying, man, we can't eat that. We don't feel free to eat that. Another group of people saying, no, no, absolutely, it's my right. I, I feel free to eat that. And the problem is they were causing division in the body of Christ. Paul now applies the gospel to this problem. And what do you mean, Brian? What, what do you mean that he applies the gospel to an issue like food? Exactly what in the world does that mean? Well, here's the, the news of the gospel. The news of the gospel is, is that you and I are sinners. We are headed for a one-way street destined for an eternity to hell. There's no amount of quiet times or prayers or no amount of money that we could give to get us out of hell's grip. God peered over the balcony of heaven and said, they are headed for an eternity in hell. Something must happen. In my just demands, I just can't forgive them. Payment must be made. And yet, they do not have the means to work themselves out of this predicament. Jesus says, I'll, I'll be the payment. So Jesus took on flesh, walked among us. He died on a cross in and for our sins, and we are saved by grace through faith. It is the simple message of the good news of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the gospel. Now here's what I want you to understand. Jesus didn't have to come. Jesus could have said, listen, that's their problem, that's not mine. Instead, he decides to come, and we call that laying down his rights. We are saved because Jesus laid down his rights. Now what does this have to do with food? Paul is trying to get them to understand that when you are divided over a non-essential item and you're trying to coerce people to view life like you, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel means I want to lay down my rights for the good of others and the glory of God. Now, in chapter 9, he uses himself as an illustration, as an example of one who is laying down his rights. He says to them, I, I came to you, I planted this church, uh, I, I never charged you anything, you never gave me payment, I was bivocational, I, I made tents, I had the right to charge you, but I laid down those rights because that's what the gospel calls us to. In fact, in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, but I have made no use of any of these rights. Then in our text, verse 19, straight out the gate, Paul says, For though I am free from, uh, from all, I have made myself a servant to all, which is what, what he is communicating here is, I've laid down my rights. Let me just stop right here. I didn't intend to say this. 
But I think a lot of just over the years as a pastor and wading into people's marriage difficulties, yes, you should go get therapy. Yes, you should go get counseling. But I also want to encourage you, try walking in the power of the Spirit and try laying down your rights. A mutual laying down of rights. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I fly a lot on Delta for about 25 years. I've banked all my miles with Delta, and because of that, I've reached a certain, stat- I've reached a certain status, which pretty much means if there's an empty seat in first class, they'll uh, bump me, they'll upgrade me from coach to first class. Now, this is a wonderful perk, except for when I'm traveling with my wife who has no status. I have had to learn a Summit Church Blue Ridge campus that it is not conducive to a healthy marriage for me to be sitting in first class all by myself munching on Biscoff cookies while my wife is crammed in coach. Now what I am learning to do as a follower of Jesus Christ trying to apply the gospel here to first class is that when I get bumped up to first class, I, I'll sit down next to my wife in coach, which means I'm sitting in someone's seat. They'll start barking at me that I'm sitting at the, in their seat. I'll give them my my first class uh, ticket, which shuts them up real quick. Now, hear me, I have the right to hold on to that ticket. And I get a little upset about giving up that right. Pray for me. But I willingly lay it down for a greater purpose. Oneness with my bride. Now, parenthetically, what she, won't, what she won't tell you is she wants me oftentimes to just trade seats with her. Won't you give me your first class ticket? I'll sit in first class. You sit in coach. What? That's not gospel marriage. <laughs> what does this mean for us as Christians? We have the right, I guess, to not foster or adopt children. But many of you have laid down that right. You've fostered and you've adopted and and you would be the first to tell us how you see the gospel uh, at play and what you're learning here is that life is most satisfying and fulfilling, not when we are just kind of gorging off of our rights and indulgences, but when we lay them down. You have the right to not go on that mission trip and to not use your vacation time that you've been dreaming of. But many of you have laid down that right and you've used your vacation days and you've gone on that mission trip to take the gospel to that faraway place. And I guarantee you, you didn't come back regretting that decision. You have the, gospel, you have the right to not support that missionary or that philanthropic endeavor. And yet many of us have laid down that right. You have the right to eat all the chocolate you want and max out your credit cards, but that's not the way to happiness. Life is most sweetest when we lay down our rights for the good of others and the glory of God. This is what the gospel calls us to. How are you laying down your rights for the good of others and the glory of God? What does the gospel do? Number one, the gospel changes me. But the second thing that we see in our text is not only does the gospel change me, the gospel actually changes how I engage others. There's a little phrase that just keeps on coming up over and over and over again in our text. It's the phrase, I became or I have become. Look at verse 20. To the Jews, here it is, 
I became. Later on in verse 22, those under the law, I became. Verse 21, to those outside the law, I became. Verse 22, to the weak, I became. Later on, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. The idea of the phrase, I became or I have become, it is the idea of to change. One commentator says that this, the idea of this phrase, it literally means to put yourself in the shoes or in the skin of someone else to feel what they feel. Paul says, I am so compelled by the gospel that I am constantly looking at all of my relationships, all of the spheres of influence that I have. And I am just saying, how can I position myself winsomely in the life of someone else to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them? Paul, if he were living in one of our neighborhoods today, would see himself in a lot of ways as the chaplain of that neighborhood. He wouldn't just move into a neighborhood because it's a nice house and nice, safe environment. Those may be wonderful secondary things, but the primary thing is Paul would see him as an ambassador for Jesus Christ right there in his cul-de-sac and in his neighborhood. Is that your viewpoint on life? Paul says, no matter who it is in my life, if it's Jews, if it's Gentiles, if it's religiously orthodox people, if it's uh, the weak, the underbelly of society, I want to become, I want to do all things for the sake of the gospel in order to reach them. Now, hear me. What Paul is getting at here is the importance of tweaking and adjusting and changing our methods in order to reach people. Watch it. We change our methods, never our message. The message of the, Je- of, of the good news of Jesus Christ, it is on lock. We don't change that. The fact that he died in our place and for our sins. The doctrine of the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ. The fact that we are saved by grace through faith, his deity, his humanity, the resurrection, the incarnation, the virgin birth. These are core tenets of the message that we hold with a closed hand. That never changes. And anyone who gets new revelation on those things, we call them a heretic. While the message doesn't change, the methods, how we communicate them, not only should, but they must. I remember some years ago, back in the 1990s, I was living in Southern California, going through seminary at the time, and I was in a bookstore. Uh, Remember bookstores? Um, I was in a bookstore and uh, just kind of perusing a section back in the 90s. I'll never forget the title of this one book. It it was called An uh, Eight-Track Church in a CD World. Right, you're lost. What that book was trying, to, uh, was, was trying to communicate is the importance of the church in changing, tweaking, and adjusting its methods to reach the world. And that's exactly what the gospel calls and compels you and I to do. When it comes to the message of the gospel, it's closed hand. When it comes to the method and how we share those things, we are always open. I have become. Oh, there's a lady. If you've never heard of her, you should get to know her. Her name is Mary Clark. She's also known as the prison angel. Mary Clark grew up in the most desirable neighborhood in the world, Beverly Hills, California. 
Fast forward some, some years later, uh, she decided to become a nun, and out of a great sense of uh, just affinity and affection towards the incarcerated, she gave her life to reaching the incarcerated. And yet, Mary said to herself, I don't think I'm going to be really successful in reaching them as long as I posture myself as a visitor. And so Mary did the unthinkable. She went to the authorities of a local prison and begged them to give her a cell. They gave her a 10 by 10 cell, and for the next 25 years, Mary lived in this cell. She was so embraced by the incarcerated community there, they, they called her the prison angel. There's all kinds of stories. One time there was a riot that had broken out and tear gas and bullets were permeating the air and Mary heard about this and she walked in the middle of the riot and everything stopped because she had garnered the respect of these prisoners. I want you to hear me. Her effectiveness was based out of the fact that she was willing to become as extreme as that is. And yes, while we have some problems with Catholic doctrine, the idea, the principle of I have become is a core tenet to our faith. Don't you understand this time of year celebrating the advent of Jesus Christ and his incarnation literally taking on flesh is the penultimate example of I have become. We are saved not because Jesus Christ snapped his fingers from the comforts of heaven but Jesus took on flesh. He came down. He walked with us and talked with us. He is the penultimate example of a person who had become. What does this mean for us practically? Friends, if you get nothing else I say, I need you to get this statement. What Paul is trying to communicate to us in this idea of I have become or I became is that oftentimes our missionary endeavors, evangelism is most effective when we first play the guest or the visitor and then later play the host. In other words, I have found in my own life that, that I am more effective at communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ with people I have a long-term relationship with, parenthetically, I'm not talking about somebody on an airplane that you're probably going to only see once in your life, but I'm talking about neighbors and people around you. I am most effective when I first go to their turf before I invite them to mine. I remember when I was in seminary, man, I was in love with a woman who's now my wife. She'll be here at the next service. I was, I was in love with her, but I was also Poe. Again, not poor, couldn't afford the other O and the R. I was Poe. In love and Poe is a bad combination. <laughs> Again, this is back in the 90s, and I talked them into something called layaway. Man, my analogies are so on point today, man. So on point. There was something called layaway back in the day where you could just kind of put some money down and make incremental payments. And so I'm building a relationship with the jeweler. And, and the jeweler one day just kind of, he said, hey, man, I, I'd love to talk to you some about some things going on in my life. I'd love to, to invite you out for a beer. Now, I, I, haven't, I haven't garnered the taste for, for beer. And there's all kinds of stuff going on in my mind. I grew up in a very legalistic church. But I said, if me sitting in a restaurant having a beer with him will open things up for the salvation of his soul, then I'm willing. Corey and I can talk to you about some dear friends of ours, lesbian couple, when we pastored in the Bay Area. We struck up a relationship with them. I, 
all kinds of time spent at our house, but before they got to our house, we would go to their house, and every time we'd go, just the eye test, we were the only heterosexual people in the joint. God bless my youngest son who can't whisper to save his life. One time he says, Dad, are you uncomfortable? We logged all kinds of hours with each other. To this day, I had the privilege of leading their young son to faith in Jesus Christ, and they've been coming to church and sitting there all because of this principle of I have become. Now, some of you, your inner Pharisee is freaking out, so let me minister to you. I remember some years ago, I was speaking at a conference in San Diego. It's a conference put on by a nonprofit Christian organization. Thousands of college students were there. Uh, one of the things that I love that they did at the conference, they did a day of witnessing where, where the organizers of that conference just kind of mapped out very specific places. They, they wanted these college students to go and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It was, it was wonderful. They, they had mapped out specific places. Then later on that evening for the main session, the, the college students got on stage and were just kind of sharing what they saw God do that day. It was an amazing, amazing time. I'll never forget one group of male students got up and said, yeah, yeah, you know, on our day of witnessing, we saw these places that we could go, but we, try, we, we decided to veer off script, and we decided to share our faith at Hooters. Right. What would Paul say to this? Paul actually deals with this. He says in our text, this idea of I have become, it's not a free-for-all. He says, middle of verse 20, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Here it is, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Listen, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. This is important. Paul says, this is what kind of constrains me. In other words, Paul says, this idea of I have become, it doesn't mean you get to go anywhere and do anything that you want, all under the auspices of the gospel. You are under the law of Christ, which means you would never catch Paul at a strip club sharing his faith. You would never catch Paul getting drunk in order to identify with somebody. You would never catch Paul at a godless party doing godless things. There's limits. Nevertheless, Paul says, even under the law of Christ, I am willing to become all things to all people that I might save some. Is that you? Let's go home on this. Paul is clear. The gospel changes everything. It changes me, Paul shares. It also changes how I engage others. But thirdly, Paul wants us to understand that the gospel changes my view of culture. I want to just park here for a minute. All of us today would call ourselves followers of Jesus. I understand there's plenty of you who are in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. I'm thankful that you're here and you're, you're getting an opportunity to hear not what an organized religion looks like, but what the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, Chances are that happened because we heard the gospel through somebody. That somebody was, was a male or was a female. 
that somebody was of a certain ethnicity, that somebody was of a certain class. I guess what I'm trying to say is the gospel never comes to us as merely a list of propositional statements, but it always comes in what Leslie Newbegin calls embodied form. In other words, the gospel is always communicated within the context of culture. This is important because this is what Paul deals with in our text. When we talk about culture, there are many powerful forces and undercurrents of culture. Forces like ethnicity, religion, class. Paul deals with all three of this in our passage. Paul says, listen, to the Jew I became a Jew. He's dealing with ethnic Jews here. And then he says, to those outside the law, we made mention earlier, he's talking about non-ethnic Jews, Gentiles, or Greeks. He's saying that the gospel comes to bear on my multi-ethnic relationships. Not only that, Paul says the gospel comes to bear on how I relate to people of different religions. He says to those under the law, specifically, he's talking not just about ethnic Jews, but Jews who are ones religiously. And then he says to the weak. I believe here that the weak here, it's not the legalistic individual who doesn't feel the right to, to engage in their rights. No, no, no. Remember, the idea here is these individuals don't know Christ. I believe the weak is, is what com one commentator says. It is the poor, the, the marginalized, the lower class of society. He says the gospel is pushing me to step outside of my comfort zone and to relate to people of my own ethnicity and who are not of my ethnicity. It is forcing me to engage people of different religions. It is, it is prompting me to engage people that are outside of my tax bracket. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. I believe what Paul is saying is, Brian, if all of your relationships are spent with people who are just like you, they think like you, act like you, vote like you, you don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not following Christ the way he did life. So when we talk about the gospel, here it is now, we talk about the gospel in the intersection of culture as I round third and head for home, the gospel should do two things. Number one, the gospel should accommodate to culture initially. So when I'm, I, I'm, I'm stepping out and I'm going, okay, I, I, I've got some white neighbors over here, and I'm thinking about my Asian neighbors over here, and I'm, I'm thinking about those dreaded people from California driving up our prices who just moved in over there. Which I'm one of those, by the way, just moved here from San Jose. It's wonderful. The gospel should force me to reach them on their turf. In other words, the gospel says we begin with people's felt needs as a portal into their real need. So we see Paul doing this. In Acts chapter 16, he tells Timothy, come along with me, Timothy. We're going to hang out with some Jewish religious leaders. We're going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And oh, by the way, uh, because they're Jewish religious uh, individuals, ethnic Jews, we don't want to offend them. So uh, you're going to need to get circumcised. I know, I see the look on your face. It's only a $20 copay, but that's what we have to do. 
because I don't want to cause offense. The end of Acts chapter 9, we see God readying Paul to steward the gospel to a Gentile community. But in order for him to do that, he puts this uh, Jewish guy named Peter, I should say, in the home with Simon the Tanner, who is a ceremonially unclean, in all likelihood Gentile. Think that was uncomfortable for Peter? Absolutely it was. Well, here we see later on Paul taking the Nazarite vow or enjoying certain festivals as the Passover to reach these orthodox religious Jews. And when we talk about reaching out to the poor, is not this the example of Jesus? Over and over and over again, we, we see a Jesus who hangs out and does life with the poor and the marginalized of society. So what does this look like for us? One of the things I'm keenly aware of if I want to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially minorities who have been culturally programmed, some of them a certain way when it comes to justice and how they view privileged people, I can't just come in having an argument with them over critical race theory. That's not going to win them with the gospel. i got to start with where they are. And I have to see justice as a profound apologetic. When I think of my own sister-in-law and all the hurt that she's gone through and being disappointed by God and she's wrestling with the, with the concept that theologians call theodicy and how in the world can a good God allow horrific things to happen to her and she has terminal cancer. If I want to see her come to know Christ, I've got to meet her there. The gospel calls us to accommodate culture initially. But the second thing the gospel does, the gospel must always afflict certain aspects of culture. Everybody's culture, there's good things about it and there's not so good things. There's parts of it that lines up with the gospel and there's parts of it that does not line up with the gospel. So if I'm in India, certain sections of India's culture, they have this thing where a man dies and at his funeral they take his widow and they burn her. The gospel should speak to that. If I'm in 19th century America and slavery, the gospel should push against that. The gospel should push against certain cultures that are all about polygamy and the way in which they treat women. The gospel should push against the caste system. This is what the gospel should do. What does this look like here? Well, l let me go back to critical race theory. Critical race theory is fraught with problems. I do believe it's nuanced. There are some helpful things we can learn, but it's fraught with problems. One of the problems is, is the oppressed oppressor binary. Hear me now. I need you to hear me. This is a problem in the church of Jesus Christ. There is this growing trend in our culture of the deification of the, of the oppressed. Where we pretty much say, man, if you're, if you're a minority, if you're marginalized, if you're poor, the way we speak about them and treat them, it is as if they're on a fast track to heaven. What we have to understand is we are not saved by our poverty. Our oppression does not curry us favor with God. We are saved by the grace of God. Again, Leslie Newbegin is helpful here. He says this. 
If we turn to the ministry of Jesus himself, look at it with me. It is, of course, clear that Jesus shocked the established authorities by being a friend to all. Not only to the destitute and hungry, but also to those rich extortioners, the tax collectors whom all decent people ostracized. That the shocking thing was not that he sided with the poor against the rich, but that he met everyone equally with the same unlimited mercy and the same unconditional demand for total loyalty. If we look at the end of his earthly ministry at the cross, it is clear that Jesus was rejected by all, rich and poor, rulers and people alike. Before the cross of Jesus, there are no innocent parties. His cross is not for some and against others. It is the place where all are guilty and all are forgiven. This is the message of the gospel. Being poor does not fast track you to heaven. Sure, we should do everything we can to minister to them. But the greatest ministry is not food in their belly. It is also food for their soul in the message of the cross. So what does this look like for us? Friends, if the gospel never messes with your culture, if it never pokes and prods in how you spend money, if it never pushes against your political proclivities, your gospel is too small. Evie Hill legendary, legendary black pastor. If you've never heard E.B. Hill preach, your life is lacking. Legendary black pastor preached all over the world. He was once attacked by the Black Panther Party for selling his people out by preaching a white Jesus. I love E.B. Hill's response. Will you look at what this black pastor said? I don't, anything, I don't know anything about a white Christ. I know about Christ, a Savior named Jesus. I don't know what color he is. He was born in brown Asia. He fled to black Africa, and he was in heaven before the gospel got to white Europe. So I don't know what color he is. I do know one thing. If you bow at the altar with color in your mind and get up with color in your mind, go back again and keep going back until you no longer look at his color, but at his greatness and his power. His power to save. What is E.B. Hill saying? Our gospel transcends culture. It transcends economic status. It transcends ethnicity. We truly are gospel above all people. And if the gospel is your swimming pool, not just your diving board, it will totally upend your life, how you view others how you engage others for the glory of God. So I got to ask you, have you said yes to Jesus? Have you submitted to his call on your life? Have you joined in to what he is doing in this life? Oh, friends, I don't care what it is you did last night, what it is you've done this past week, what it is you've done in your life. We serve an all-knowing, omniscient God who knows everything you've ever done, are doing, and will ever do to break his heart. And yet, astoundingly, he says, I still want you. My grace is sufficient for you. My forgiveness is at hand. All we must do is to say yes to him. There's some of us here today, we've said yes to Jesus. We're, We're just living that cultural Christianity thing where just enough Jesus to be acceptable, but not too much to be fanatical. 
That's not the portrait Paul gives us. Paul's all in. It changes everything. I'm laying down my rights. I'm doing life with people I never would have done life with prior to saying yes to Jesus. My yes is on the table. Is that you, friend? I believe today he's calling some to say yes to him for the first time, and he's calling others to repent. Metanoia of our cultural Christianity. Father, we pray now in the name of Jesus that your gospel would be unleashed in our lives. We would be a gospel above all people, whatever it takes. We become all things to all people so that by all means we might save some. In Jesus' name.